the act of choosing uh, that is, I'd say, radical in the system we live in that really asks us to like surrender to this way that is nothing but oppressive. You know, like the expectations of us by this system are are unrealistic. They're that of machines, truly, <laughs> like that of machines. Um, and so to choose to belong yourself to that which you long for is the healing work, is the medicine, really. Hey friends, welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I'm Amber Magnolia Hill. This is episode 81, which is making me smile because that's my birth year. Today, I'm sharing my interview with Becca Piastrelli. I'm super stoked because I love her new book. And if you love this podcast, you will love this book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect with Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. It's gorgeously illustrated. It is so evocative of so many of the feelings and subjects that we've touched on on this podcast. Becca interviewed me for her podcast called Belonging a couple of years ago. That episode is titled On Motherhood, Grief, and the Grandmother Hypothesis. I'll link to it in show notes. Uh, It was just a lovely conversation, and I'm so excited to extend it here and to go so much deeper into this sense of disconnection that so many of us feel and the longing for what we remember in our bones to be true for the human species, for any animal living upon planet Earth. Becca Piastrelli writes about her life experiences, facilitates women's gatherings both virtually and in person, and is the host of the Belonging Podcast. She is the author of Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. Just had to reread that beautiful title. Um, The book is separated into four sections and there's musings on sort of taking stock of where we're at, which you will certainly find yourself and your experiences reflected in. And then there are recipes and ritual ideas and action items, again, interwoven with just gorgeous illustrations. She teaches and speaks on the nature of belonging and runs retreats to help women reconnect with their rooted sense of self. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her husband, child, two cats, and five chickens, where she gardens, cooks, mothers, and gathers with the ebb and flow of the seasons. During this conversation, especially in the beginning when Becca and I talk about Just that longing, that sense of longing, knowing there's another way to live, knowing we've lost something in our modern life ways. I was reminded of my years in college at UC Davis and the first year that my then boyfriend took me to the Whole Earth Festival, which is like a a thing. It's a big thing in Davis. And he was like, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And I was like, okay, I don't know. What is this? And I did love it. And I remember walking away from it. It's on campus. It's on the quad. 
it's, you know, just booths and then music and food and people selling their handmade items. It's not even anything really ritual-based or land-based, but at that time in my life, I had just been totally submersed in, in mainstream American life. The overculture was the only thing I knew. And I remember walking away to the Arboretum, which is this beautiful like nature per- preserve on the campus of UC Davis that I used to spend all my lunches at because no one was ever there. It was crazy. Everyone was in the quad where it was so crowded and filled with people. And I would just take my food and go to the Arboretum and find this peace and beauty. But I remember walking away from the huge crowd at the Whole Earth Festival to the Arboretum, sitting by the water and just crying, like sobbing, because I had glimpsed something that I wanted. There was a midwifery booth and there were people making whole foods and educating about organics and herbalism. And at the time, I had not put the ancestral connection piece into my life or or many other things, but it was an introduction. It was something and something tugged at my heart that day. Uh, I was just really reflecting on like, wow, here I am now, almost 20 years later, and I'm so glad that people are having these conversations and people are writing these books. So let me tell you about the Patreon offerings to go along with this episode. There are two guided meditations provided by Becca there, an autumn forest meditation and a winter breath meditation. Y'all know I love guided meditations. They drop me right into my center and chill me out and open my inner visionary state in ways that are always unexpected. Something unexpected always comes when I do a guided meditation. So those are there for patrons of the podcast Thank you. I love you. And then available to everyone, not just patrons, although it lives on patreon.com slash medicine stories is a giveaway of the book. Becca will be signing and mailing out three copies of Root and Ritual. So find medicine stories on Patreon. The link is in show notes and you can enter to win. I will close the entry period three weeks from whatever day this episode comes out, which I'm thinking will be Samhain. I hope so. If everything falls into place, certainly early November. And finally, if you're listening to this, the day it comes out, I'm 95% sure our extra potent elderberry elixir will be in stock. I have to record these at least a week before they publish because I'm working with various people to get them out. So I'm not always sure on timing, but most likely extra potent elderberry elixir will be in the shop at mythicmedicine.love. You can find it there. The link will be in the notes. There are ample resources related to this conversation in the show notes as well. And again, if you like this podcast, if you have ever resonated with anything we've talked about, you're going to love this book. I feel like this book more than any other that I've talked about or read reflects the heart of my work and of the Medicine Stories podcast. So Becca is truly a kindred spirit, and I'm so happy she took the time being pregnant and postpartum, we talk about that, to put this book into the world. Okay, here we go. Thanks for being here, y'all. Hey, Becca, welcome to Medicine Stories. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. 
I'm happy to have you here. Um, I was on your podcast over a year ago because you were still pregnant uh-huh. and always wanted to follow up and have you on. And so I'm glad we're finally doing that and that it is around this gorgeous book that you have written. I would like to start, I really love asking this question of folks by asking just a little bit about your childhood and what sort of through line do you see from from who you were as a child and the work you're doing in the world now? And I think for this conversation too, we can really ground this in that we both and probably most people listening grew up in just very mainstream modern Western culture, not connected to the Mm -hmm. land, to our ancestors, to great greater community. So yeah, keeping that in mind too. Yes. Yeah. So I grew up um, in suburban Northern California. Where? Like two towns from where I am now, Novato, California in Marin County. Yeah. Unlike a, a new property, like suburban track, like, like the house we moved into when I was five, we moved from DC to California. I don't even remember the DC years. The house was new on the land. Like there was nothing there before. And I remember being like, ew, it looks so gross here. Like so new and gross and groomed. There was like some wisdom there. I think of like, this feels devastating to the natural world. Yeah. And I, I often talk now that I'm really on the plant path um, about like wishing I had like a crinkly eyed old grandmother who like taught me the ways of the land, you know, who like still had the thick accent of her, of our ancestors and could like teach me how to can and when to, you know, what part of the plant to harvest during what season and all of that. But no, no, we had like a a little garden. Um, Mostly it was like tomatoes. That's like our thing in our family. Like that's what we grow tomatoes, you know, like Roundup was sprayed because it was like an annoying plants were annoying to our living areas. And yeah, I can like squint my eyes and remember feeling the magic, right. Of climbing the trees. And, but what I really remember is like getting stung by a bee and hating H A T I N G hating bees thinking ants were gross because they got into our trash can and crawled up my arm and freaked me out and being afraid that if I ate a plant, I would die because they're probably poisonous mushrooms, especially scary, scary. Then like the daycare teacher would have to give you Ipecac and you'd throw up like that. That's like the dominant memory, like memories I have of growing up. And also, I don't know if it's generational, you know, but like I was super addicted to television and I was like, we would go to the malls and I was quite social and yeah. So I I was not, uh, my parents, the other thing is, is my parents would take us camping every summer. That was like our vacations. We'd go camping, right? Get in the car. I'd get car sick and throw up. And then we'd go camping and hiking and I would just hate it. And I would just sit in the tent writing lists of all the things I was going to do when I get home, all movies I was going to watch, all the Nickelodeon shows I was going to watch. And like, I'd plan parties, like all these things that just get me out of this living world situation. (laughs) And, you know, that took me on a path like into the city, climbing the corporate ladder, doing the whole thing, and then just really had to run to the end of that line to realize, oh, I'm unfulfilled. Oh, I'm actually 
being called back to the plants because there's this like ache, this existential deep ache inside of me that I can't really fill with television and box mac and cheese anymore. Like there had to be another way. And then that took me back, took me back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly the same. And I think that extends to the generations above and before us as well, more or less, um, where like in early childhood, we do sense that magic of nature if we're lucky enough to even be able to spend time outdoors, really. And then by the time the teenagers come along, I remember my daughter's middle school teacher saying a few years ago, like little kids, you can take them on like trips based around nature and they still love it. But once they hit middle school, they're only interested in like culture Mm. and socializing. So you can start you know, gearing your trips towards like museums or concerts more. And I thought that was a cool perspective and seems very true. And then you write in your book, and this is true for me as well, is that it was in your 20s when you started to just note that something was missing and like long for a return to older ways of living. And as an herbalist, people always ask like, what, what brought you into herbalism? And a lot of times they expect some big healing story and a lot of people have those, but for me and for so many other people, it was like, I just felt called. I just mm-hmm. knew for me, it was like a rebellion against the way of life I had grown up with. I was like, there has to be another way, another way to heal, another way to be healthy, another way to live in communion. Even though I don't even think I had that word for it yet, living in communion. So you write that we belong to what we long for. And I think this is exactly the heart of what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Right. Our longing is pointing us to some deeper healing. I think that's a Stephen Jenkinson quote there or reference in some way. Yeah. I, what was the calling? I remember the callings appearing to me through like farmer's markets and like Mm -hmm. beautifully styled produce departments. (laughs) You know, when you go into a grocery store and someone's really, someone loves those, those fruits and vegetables in a way to really make it look like they are loved. Whereas you go into other grocery stores and, you know, I just, you know, the tomatoes don't feel alive. They feel oppressed. So there was something where just like that, just through accessing food that I needed to go get to feed myself called to me. And then I would have these waking dreams, these visions of women around a table next to a fire, nourishing themselves. And it just sent me on this. I was just insatiably hungry to embody that in some way. You know, it's like some people say, oh, you know, that scene in Outlander where Claire's in the room and all the herbs are hanging from the ceiling. And isn't that just speaking to you in that way. And I'm like, oh yeah. Yep. Yep. That is, that is it where it's like, I don't even know cognitively why I want that, but my body hungers for it. And then all of a sudden I'm like reading about midwifery and looking up YouTube videos of like these Lithuanian villages where they're still preserving ancestral ways. And I'm just hungry for, you know, period costume movies and TV shows and books. And all of a sudden it's, it's clear to me. And it took me a long time to learn this term ancestral ways, but that's it. It just felt so much better than all the things that had gotten me that like entertained me. 
right? That in some way fed me. It just was like, you know, the the like air cracker that doesn't really satiate your belly versus versus the ancestral ways where like a deep bone broth that felt good and deep and lasting. One topic that I return to again and again on this topic that in this podcast that you write about in your introduction is that we were not built for these times physiologically homo sapiens evolved in a completely different world and 99% of our ancestors were hunter gatherers so living directly on the land and having uh, I don't know, a spiritual reality so different from the one we're living in today and I, I don't even know if spiritual is the right term because it kind of has different connotations nowadays but in direct relationship with the land and with reverence for their ancestors and and who came before them. And I love this idea of evolutionary mismatch theory that says that we are all so unwell today because our bodies are mismatched to the lifestyles we're living. And I'm reading the book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life by Heather Hayne and Brett Weinstein. And they're really making this point so strongly too, that, you know, if you, if you graph the rate of change for the human being over millennia, it's incredibly slow for thousands and thousands of years. And then in the last couple hundred years, suddenly we're, it's, it's growing exponentially. We're like going vertically straight up right now. So the world is vastly different today than it was a year ago. And that's never happened in human history before. And it is fucking disorienting and hard and everyone is struggling. Mm-hmm. And so what, what we're talking about here, and I know what we both look at in our podcasts and what the focus of your book is, is how can we in this modern world reclaim some of what has been lost? Mm-hmm. Yes, this is what I think about all the time. Yeah, all the time as you and I are talking on the internet right now. So I always like to point that out, right? Like I still feed myself primarily from a grocery store. Yeah. Uh, I guard, you know, I'm a hobby gardener and I rely on electricity and plumbing and I'm talking to you on the internet. I make money off the internet, right? So I exist in this modern world, right? It's hard not to. It's really we hard. We do. Yes. There's no yes. going back. There's no going back. Um, so that feels important to state. And also, um, it's really hard to be in a body in this system right now. And I just think of the effect of the pandemic, right? And how there's just like finally a conversation around how like this is actually too much for a nervous system a human nervous system, this animal body we have to actually hold, right? And to give ourselves some space and grace around whatever our coping mechanisms have become in the last months, year and a half. And I'm really drawn to this conversation around it being the Aeromacine, the age of loneliness. That has been a dominant feeling I have felt in a time when I am more connected to all beings than ever before. You and I could message on like 10 different platforms in order to get in touch with each other, which I have no interest in doing. (laughs) Like, And yet there's a real sense of like a mental health crisis, a sense of loneliness. It's really, you know, just 
last week, this Facebook, Instagram whistleblower came out about the impacts on teenagers being on devices and on social media. And so that feels like crisis level. And it's all coming. My curiosity is all coming from my own experience of that, of being like, oh yeah, there is, I'm disconnected. And there's so much to say about why, right? The You're talking about the just like the rapid hockey stick growth of change technology. There's the fact that so much of the living world is being like killed, dying off. There's this huge extinction event happening that we're living through. And then the severance of us from our ancestral ways, our ancestral lands and from the living world. The fact that our mutual friend Mila Prince was sharing this in her recent workshop about um, plants, plant allies for the age of loneliness. If this cons this term nature, this term nature being a colonial term because it's separating it from us. And that we actually are have always been a part of that, but we have been just like fully programmed to believe that it is separate from us. All of that creates this, I believe, a crisis of unbelonging, a crisis of loneliness. It's a crisis for me and for all of us. And so how can we look back to the ways our ancestors lived and incorporate that into our lives? I think you're doing that through plants. I think it can be done through boundaries around email and technology. I can think it can be done by simply touching the earth. It's also not complicated technology, this ancestral ways. It does take intention, like real devotion. And I think that starts with the grief and acceptance of, oh, this isn't working the way it is now. Right. And that is, like you said, I think one of the gifts of the pandemic is that so many more people are realizing that it's not working and realizing how unhappy and disconnected they are. Mm-hmm. And it's been so sad. Like the thing about teenagers, especially just really gets me. Yeah. effects of social media and of the pandemic and distance on them. So you write in your book that it is important to allow ourselves to wander within our daydreams of another way of being. And it is. Every change starts with daydreaming. It starts with the imagination, conceiving of another possibility. And that's what I see this book being. You also write, this book is meant to help you release your own tattered threads back together, not release, reweave your own tattered threads back together so that you can remember where you come from and find a deeper sense of belonging in this world here and now. Mm. Your podcast is called Belonging. We've used the word numerous times already in this interview. Was Did the belonging piece come when you were able to recognize and name the isolation and loneliness you were feeling? Yes. Yes. One came with the other. And I I'm realizing like my pursuit of a feeling of belonging will be lifelong. I think the just history of our ancestors that have brought us to this moment in time is complex and difficult to just, I talk about reweaving, but I don't think I'll have a complete tapestry next week where I'll be like, I belong. (laughs) I belong in the natural world. I belong on these stolen lands. Like I belong, like, oof, you know, it's, it's a spiral, not a straight line. It's given me words and a path to walk and a practice to be embody so that I can make meaning of this lifetime. I'm, you know, lucky to live. 
You and I have both interviewed Tokopa Turner, who wrote a book called Belonging. And I appreciate in one of your podcasts that I just listened to, you remind me that she uses the word as a verb. I belong myself to my ancestors. I belong myself to the land I'm living on. And this is a part of um, imagining and envisioning the possibilities and what we can change and what is new is, is realizing that it's a choice. It can be a choice to choose what we want to belong to and to start reweaving those connections. Mm, it must be a choice. I think in the the act of choosing, uh, that is, I'd say, radical in the system we live in that really asks us to like surrender to this way that is nothing but oppressive. You know, like the expectations of us by this system are are unrealistic. They're that of machines, truly, <laughs> like that of machines. And so to choose to belong yourself to that which you long for is the healing work, is the medicine, really. I love that line. <laughs> so my impression from reading the book, listening to your podcast, is that you were facilitating and participating in women's circles pretty early on, like that this was a foundational part of your work and, and becoming who you are now. And so I would love to hear a little more about the medicine of gathering with women and about this question that was central to at least one of the groups you were in, which is how am I doing really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm finding in all the interviews I'm doing for this book that this is a real potent question and curiosity. And I think it has to do with the fact that a lot of us have not been together in the ways we were in the past over the last year and a half plus, including myself. So it's, we belong together, you know, like human beings belong together in community. That's how we survived together. When I talk about women's circles in particular, the level of like yearning I get from other beings, no matter, like no matter their age or, you know, creed, or it's just like, I want that. I want that. And I wanted that. I'm someone who I did Girl Scouts. I was in a sorority. I was part of like toxic cliques. Like I, I've just been, I think in a constant study of what it is to healthily gather with other women and heal so much that has been a part of our history. Right. And I have a one women's circle gather in the new moon gathering for the last eight years. And the lineage we follow is that of Jean Shinoda Bolin who wrote goddesses and every woman, one of her famous ones and the book she wrote about circling that I highly recommend getting. It's a small little book is called the millionth circle. And it's really based on this idea, this uh, belief that she believes that once we have a million women, a million women circles around the world, that we can really heal this sense of the sisterhood wound or the patriarchal wound of, of this belief that's like on The Bachelor, <laughs> that like we have to fight each other to basically survive. And she has two questions. She says that 
you know, like there's so much that can be said about a ritual and a ceremony. And I think a lot of people expect gathering together to be ornate and like, what do, what do I do? Like, should we have, we should we call in the four directions and then we should we do the thing and then we should make the stuff. And it's like, no, there's actually just two questions that Jane Shinoda Bolin says you need to answer. And the first one is how am I doing really? Not how was your week? Not what's the story that you're telling? It's like right now, tune in, like don't, no pass. Like, how are you doing really? And then what's most important to you right now? And in that space, you're sitting in a circle of women envisioning yourself answering that question. It's quite vulnerable, quite tender. But if you can be witnessed in that moment of saying what's real and true, then it's, that is deep, deep medicine. And so that has been the practice that I have been a part of, and that I also, when I do lead circles and it's been a bit, I bring that in to the space as well. Like whatever you are planning to say or planning to look like, like, let's just drop in right in this moment. How are you doing really? It's, it's often that simple. I love that. Um, I was recently invited to a women's circle and or, or told, I'll invite you to the next one on the next new moon. And my inner reaction was, eh. <laughs> uh, you know, because I, because of what you spoke to, I have been to them and I've hosted them where I felt like it needed to be this elaborate thing. Um, especially if it's like a women's circle, that seems very like official, you know, mm. something just like hang out with your girlfriends, go get dinner or something. But, and I get very, I, I'm wondering if you can speak to this. Because we grew up in such a disconnected way, and me too, with the Nickelodeon and the boxed processed foods my entire life, that even though I've been on this other path for 15, 20 years now, I still sometimes feel like awkward around ritual and ceremony, especially with others. Like, um, just are we really doing this? Like, I just, I guess, really, the only way through that is to keep participating and keep doing it on my own and with others, but I really mourn and really grieve for the fact that I did not grow up participating in real, deeply meaningful ritual with my community. Oh, me too. Yeah. Like the rites of passage being honored and us feeling um an intuitive sense of like trust like okay we know what to do next and we all yeah we all embrace it so yeah there's a total awkwardness amber i still feel that way i still feel that way often like what will people think of me is the is the thought and then the next one is that i'm weird which is why i love this term weird w y r d cuz i'm just like yep yeah i am embodying my destiny (laughs) my purpose yeah I something I just remind myself is even if it's awkward or even if I perceive judgment or if I'm judging there is a collective yearning for this ritual and I just really think about how I'm in this for the long game right that if I'm privileged to be an elder in, in my community that it'll, I'll probably lose the cynicism at some point. Mm-hmm. And that's really probably to protect me, to protect me from, you know, the like catty feelings of rejection that I very much experienced, the burns, you know, the like 
the girlfriend relationships gone wrong. We've all got a story, whether we, you know, I was perpetrator and I was perpetrated against and that sticks with you. And then our ancestors had that too, you know, the burning times literally like telling on each other so they could live kind of a thing. It's, it's deep, it's deep, the mistrust. And I think the mistrust can come out as like, well, are you forward? I think also capital R religion plays a huge role here. And the mistrust um, of ritual of like, what are you trying? Are you some cult? Like there's so much. I remember I was doing women's circle in a, in a forest near my old house. And some teenage guy went by on his skateboard and he was like devil worshipers. And it, and I was like, no, that's not what we're doing. I'm just working with plants and talking about my dreams. You know, that hits something in me. Of, oh, like that part of me that's descended from ancestors who were like terrified of being identified as heathen. So there's a lot there. So I think you're right. Stick with it. And if a space doesn't resonate, don't be there, you know, but this is important. Yeah. I think what you said about like, like sticking with it for, if you're lucky enough to become an elder, but extending it even beyond that, I I feel like our generation, especially we are just doing the beginning of this reclaiming work and we aren't going to nail it in our lifetimes. We are not going to magically remake the world into the place that our ancestors inhabited in a way that really feels as meaningful and healing and connected as we want it to be. But we can do a lot. We can capture moments of it and we can turn the we can tilt the world in that direction for our descendants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice reality check, honestly, particularly for those of us who have perfectionist tendencies and have a hard time with the messy middle. Mm-hmm. I'm one of them, right? Yeah, to, to bring some grace and understanding to the awkwardness and wobbliness of any of these things or the moments we doubt ourselves, the moments that, you know, you like let's say you're doing a tarot oracle deck and you pick the card and then you you feel that like, is this really true? Or the moment someone like tells you a dream and it feels prophetic. And then you're like, is this stupid? Like, just stay with it. Just stay with it. And I find it's, it's just a relief even here, just telling the truth. Right. Like there's a, there's an element I think of performance that can happen that takes us like away from the earth, away from the ground. And I just find such a relief and being like, I feel a little silly, but also I feel really good. And just telling the truth through it all will keep us at it. Nodding vigorously. (laughs) (laughs) So some, something that I really loved, the book is divided into four sections. And the first is land belonging to land. And what I didn't expect to jump out at me so much in that section is the writing about your home as part of the land, as on top of the land, you know, you're, you're right there. You probably spend most of the time on the land you're on in your home, if you're a modern American person. So I was grateful for this idea of sitting with the soul of your home and listening to what it wants as a mom 
and a modern consumer, I often feel super overwhelmed by my home, by the space inside, by the clutter and the mess and the excess of things. And, you know, I'm kind of constantly making bags to go to the thrift store and wondering where did all this shit come from? Mm -hmm. What am I doing? Why am I so bad at minimalism? And so that, just that sentence right there, sitting with the soul of your home and listening to what it wants feels like such a sweet invitation into tuning into what, what is actually needed and what can I actually do? Cause actually I'm not a minimalist and neither is my husband. We like decor and we like cute little things everywhere. And I feel more at home in slightly messy homes than I do in bare minimalist spaces. So I'm always trying to find that balance. And I, I guess that this invitation to me feels like a welcome space to further explore finding that balance. Ugh, yeah, same, same with the being a maximalist. It's <laughs> like I'm so drawn to like, I'm drawn to like hotels that feel minimal, that feel like spas, because it clears my mind, but my house. I mean, especially now that I'm a mother too, like there are toys everywhere. I have bought none of them. Yeah. They have appeared in my home. Yeah. And I even have like a no toys like rule. And yet, you know, yeah, no one so, cares. No one listens to that. No one cares. My gosh. And then, you know, they grow like a foot a second. And so I'm constantly just cycling up. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah. The soul of a home. Well, yeah. From this animist perspective that I'm really trying to, bring into my cells, right? Of the aliveness of all things. And thinking about homes being on the earth, the earth touches this home. And I'm looking out these panes of glass behind my computer, these very old black oak trees. Like if I can remember and integrate that this space is embodying this land and has a soul that soothes me a little bit around the sense of being like itchy, uncomfortable, having to fix it kind of a thing. And, you know, this home right now wants toys on the floor. My baby's happy with that, you know, mason jar lids all <laughs> up and down the kitchen. Cause she just loves them, you know, and I can, I'm really asking myself to relax into that. And, you know, there's, I think there's some lowercase h harm done by this whole like fixer upper home magazine. I'm not really in that world, but like, I know a lot of people I talk to, like there's this sense of being embarrassed of your home. People come over because it doesn't look like something someone curated in like the target section, home section or whatever it is. Right. And I love like you playing with my home and creating altars and lighting candles and oh the holidays like it's like it's on you know it's so fun my home is an altar my home is an expression of the season of my bioregion and of my ancestors it's so fun and i myself have really had to look at like who is this home for who am i trying to impress how many people do you come over to their homes like oh my god i'm sorry it's so messy oh like you can see their embarrassment i've been that person and I just have a practice of being like, I love it. I love your house. I love feeling you in here. I love that you have like food on the floor from yesterday's lunch from feeding your toddler. Yeah. I I love it. You know, I have a little bit of trouble in like a, a hoarder situation because then it feels like a home is not loved. 
you know, I can feel the home like crying a little bit. I'm not around a lot of hoarders, but I've been in that experience before. So I think it's a different way of looking at instead of like, you know, Marie Kondo, tidy it up kind of a thing. Although I think she knows that a home has a soul. Did you ever watch her? I don't know how you feel about Marie Kondo, but did you ever watch her Netflix special? Yeah. And she meditates. She sits on the floor and she asks the home permission Mm. and thanks it. And most of the time, the people whose home it is start crying. Mm. Because they're like, oh, right. My poor house. How does my house feel about this? Mm. No. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. Yeah. Thank you. I I look forward to that paradigm shift moving forward as I deal with living in my home, which I both love and hate. Yeah. I mean, I'm right there with you. So in the next section of your book, which was my favorite on lineage and ancestors, there's a whole chapter on connecting to lineage through food and folklore, which was my favorite and is one of my favorite things to talk about. And, you know, really helps move us out of a purely intellectual space when we think about connecting with our ancestors. And, you know, it's really easy. And so many people who are, who claim to be into ancestry, who are into ancestry, just do genealogy and paperwork and computer research, which is amazing and can tell you so much and be incredibly meaningful and soul satisfying. But it really does ground it when you bring these types of things in. So I am curious what, you know, any lineage of yours that you would care to share about who your people are, what, who you really feel connected with and how you have connected to them through these folkways and really what we can consider the, the women's realms of, Mm -hmm. of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm called to share a story that I share in the book that has to do with food, food, something that awakens something inside of us, right? Like we all have to eat. And there's generally for most of us, a sense of like the sense, the way food awakens senses and memory in us that I, I, a former teacher of mine is Liz Miliarelli, sister spinster. And she did um, an ancestral potluck with us. And we all brought food of our people, whatever that meant. And like one of one of the, she has European ancestors, but her dad was stationed in Japan. And so she brought like Japanese food. She was sharing like that story. Like there's so many ways to food tells the story of our ancestors, like recent ancestors or far, far ancestors. So in the book, I talk about the life-saving lima bean soup. And this is on my father's mother's side who immigrated from what was then Poland, what is now Germany. The movement of borders is an interesting new thing in human history. But so we're always like, are we German? Are we Polish? It's very confusing, right? Who are we? But it's the land. It's the land she was from. So my great-grandmother was six years old when her mother immigrated her family from Poland 
through New Orleans. And New Orleans was a much easier access point into the United States than Ellis Island was at that time, late 1800s. And it was also very wild place to live, quite dangerous. And I know this because I'm lucky enough to have diary entries from my great grandmother's sister. And yeah, I, she even talks about Mardi Gras. Like they wanted to go out and see the parades, but there were always like stabbings because people would get really drunk and they'd fight. And it was just like a, a town of immigrants that just like didn't get along like gangs of New York style, but gangs of New Orleans style. Anyways, they came there to work and they worked in a shrimp factory and the children worked there. My six-year-old great-grandmother, Philomena, Philomena Schleicher worked there. Just like, that's the history of our land is like child labor. (laughs) And they lived in factory housing. And one night the house burnt down house just completely burnt down. And my great-grandmother's father was working in, I think, Mississippi on railroad. So my great-great-grandmother didn't know what to do. She had like six children and she was just walking the streets. She probably didn't speak the language or very well. And um, she was so desperate. It says in the diary entry that she was going to go drown them in the ocean or I guess in the river. And that's, I I can't imagine how desperate she was, how dire the circumstances were. So she was going to go do that, I guess. And a woman who recognized her from factory housing, who I can tell was not of Polish descent, asked her what was going on. And my great, great grandmother told her And she said, no, come in with me, stay with us. And that night she made them lima bean soup. And in this diary entry of my great-grandmother's sister said that they all just like lost their minds about how delicious this lima bean soup is. And because of that lima bean soup, my great-grandmother Philomena had my grandmother Virginia, who had my father Paul, who had me, Rebecca. So that soup is a very big deal to me. My parents don't quite get it, but I'm like, oh, this is a big deal, this soup and what it represents. And I feel so lucky to know about it from that diary entry and feel so grateful to the like uncle who then transcribed that diary entry on like mm-hmm. word processor in 1991 so that I could read it <laughs> and Yeah. So the power of a dish to tell a story that feels important. And I'm sure everyone listening, you have a dish like that, even if it's like boxed funfetti cake Mm. that triggers some sort of memory, some sort of story that's important about why you're here today. That's a story about community care too. Yes. You know, it it was the taste and the sensory experience and the physical nourishment of the soup, as well as your desperate, like all hope lost great grandmother getting hope handed to her Mm -hmm. in a bowl through this act of kindness from this woman saying, no, like you can be taken care of. Mm -hmm. 
inspiring, huh? Yeah. And I, I really appreciate the reminder that and the story of the Japanese food, that it doesn't actually have to be something that your you know ancestors for generations cooked and put on the table because so many of us myself included I don't I don't have any of that Mm-mm. I don't I do not know one dish or when I like I've asked my French Canadian grandmother who was raised in Massachusetts they were so poor she's like we ate like stale bread mostly <laughs> she didn't yeah. have she doesn't have recipes and then both my parents were just raised on processed food and I do have another great grandmother's um some of her recipes but they're all like margarine and shortening and you know vegetable oils that I don't put in my body and so I've always kind of felt bereft and I don't have an ancestral recipe to turn to and so that's mm-hmm. that's helpful mm-hmm. and I think you know the history of humans across the world is one of immigration, you know, and I think that should be not acknowledged as much as I talk about the importance of returning to ancestral land and have made been privileged enough to make pilgrimages to ancestral land and really connect like those ancestors traveled there at some point, right? Like we know that the original ancestors are from one land and then there's movement. And so I think that can be acknowledged through the food or the stories, the songs, the dance of like over time due to many factors, whether war, famine, opportunity, we've moved, we've moved and that impacts all parts of our lives. Yeah, we've moved. And like you said earlier, borders changing is kind of a new thing, but borders are a new thing. Nation states are a relatively recent development in human history that really have no meaning besides what we put on them. And so, so, so much is lost to us about our ancestors as far as like specific concrete details. And instead we have this opportunity to look at sort of larger movements and yeah, songs and stories and, and visiting lands. Where have you visited? Mm, I've visited Ireland and Scotland and England. Mm-hmm. Those have been really the lands that asked me, begged me to come, mm-hmm. which is mostly my mother's matrilineal side, which I've done a lot of a lot of work on that ancestral side. Yeah, Scotland impacted me so much that I named my daughter. Her middle name is after an island that we went to in Scotland. Yeah, it's such a beautiful practice and it's like hard to do these days, but I'm, I know if it's possible. Yeah, I know. I feel so sad. I've been telling my 15 year old for years that when she's 16, we'll go to France. Mm. Hmm. I don't know if that's going to happen. Hard to know how that'll go. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of this passage from the Tao Te Ching that says, like you can go everywhere just by looking out your window, something like that. And it might sound crazy to people and seem kind of counterintuitive, but it's always stuck with me. And it, I think it relates to what we were just saying about how there's some things about our ancestors we'll never know, but we do have so much opportunity to connect right here and now with what we have mm-hmm. and what's available to us. And one of my favorite practices has always been what you call in the book, living in mythic time. 
And you write, in this realm of mythic time, it's a lot easier for me to access the wisdom and healing needed to connect with all those who came before me. So maybe we don't know the specifics. Maybe we are unable to travel for whatever reason, but we can use ancestral time to connect with our ancestors. And one thing that you do in the book, aside from these you know, beautiful sort of musings and just like taking stock of where we're at right now is give practices. And you give this practice that's something I've done before, but it's been a while and it really makes me want to do it again. You write, using ancestral time, mythic time, what stories from your lineage are ever happening? In what ways has your ancestral past repeated itself? Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that and specifically like using that present tense? Yeah, Amber, I really have to credit one of your blog posts for support. I read it. How long ago did you write that post? Like five years ago or something? Yeah. I remember reading it and then just diving into as much literature as I could because it just felt so activating, especially because I feel like such a victim of linear time. So I really have to thank you for what you shared. Yeah. It was like (laughs) women's wellness and linear time, something like that. Forgetting the title, but yeah, worth, worth linking to in the show notes, I think, because it's really well presented and something and a modality that I participate in a healing modality is uh, ancestral constellation work, which is rooted in um, South African, I think Zulu tradition of working out conflict in a community by having the whole community sit in a circle and have community members step in for different participants in the conflict and basically constellate with their bodies, listen to their bodies for what's happening in order to find resolution. And so a man named Bert Hellinger, who was dealing with um, post-World War II devastation of the psyche of Germany, brought it there. And then eventually it's been brought here. And I work with a woman named Grandmother Sarah Bicknell, who I think we might know from Spirit Weavers. I bring this up because this idea of things ever happening, stories that keep coming up in throughout our ancestral lines, a a lot of us have like a pain or a story that keeps coming like alcohol abuse or a trauma or a belief system. And that's been really helpful for me to work in this modality of ancestral constellation where you can invite, there's a field and you invite an ancestor that like a stranger represents, they know nothing about this ancestor onto the field to work through whatever's happening. Like I participated in one last weekend where we looked at um, the electric shock therapy. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother received for her depression in quotes in the 1960s and how that created a real electric jolt of fear that my mom has. It basically impacted the nervous system of my ancestry. So that's one example. Uh, I've also taken a look at uh, the drunk men, the drunk men of my both lines and what hungry ghosts are there and how can we work to heal that, to complete that story in my lines that I don't pass it down. So in order to look at that, you have to take into account the ancestral stories that have happened in the right there, no longer in their bodies that happened in the linear past, but in this sense of mythic or ancestral time, they are happening now so that we can address it. So I think for me, what's helpful 
and not just being like, yes, time is a spiral and it's ever happening that can be sometimes disorienting, but to see, oh, if the purpose is to address these ancestors so that I can find healing so that I, or I can find healing from an ill, or I can find strength from them so that I can be a better ancestor myself so that I can move through this embodied moment. And you and I have children, right? So I'm just so compelled to give them a more healed experience of life so that if they have children, they can have a more healed experience of life. That's the motivation for bringing my ancestors into the ever happening moment of now. I have a question about your grandmother. You said that was your maternal grandmother, right? Yeah. I listened to your recent episode on how you wrote and published a book and Mm -hmm. you tell the story. Actually, why don't you just briefly tell the story of your grandmother and your mother's book writing? Yeah. So part of me publishing a book was completing an ancestral tension of, as my mom would say, writing the damn book. So uh, my, this maternal grandmother who I have a pretty deep relationship post-death, Rudy, as we call her, she, her entire life, she had a pretty tough life, a lot of trauma, wanted to be a writer, wanted to publish books so badly, wrote, my aunt recently discovered all these manuscripts, movie scripts, televisions. She just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and was very, was told she was bad at it by her alcoholic father. And yeah, it was just lived in a time where she was really just expected to be a wife and she was told she wasn't good at that either. So even when I knew her in her later years, she was very obsessed with Michael Flatley of Lord of the Dance. So I have seen Lord of the Dance a hundred times and I'm obsessed. Uh, Irish descent. Yes. Yes. And she always said she was going to write his biography. So part of me is like, should I write his biography? Anyways, she never published a book. And then my mother was very, her and her siblings were very frustrated with watching their mother say she was going to do something and never do it. It was very hard for them, very triggering for them to see her not fulfill this thing. She just would speak aloud, speak aloud, speak aloud. So my mom in 1981 self-published her own book back when she had a business teaching people about how to use computers and word processing. And so she wrote a how-to book on how to use a word processor, which she never told me about because she's deeply ashamed and embarrassed. And so when I started sharing with her, I'm pitching a book. I'm going to, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do this. She came over one day and she handed me this spiral bound book and said, I wrote a book and I, I can't even look at I literally, I could vomit right now. And I was just like, what is happening here? So emotionally charged. And I just said, I'm so impressed. This is amazing. I put this book on my altar and I asked her what's going on. She said, I just, I think I just did it to prove my mom I could do it. And I, I just feel a lot of nasty feelings around it. And so, yes, I wanted to write a book. Yes, it gets my my ideas out there. Yes, it's of service, but it's also very personally, very selfishly to really complete a cycle and on my maternal line of, of like, even in the acknowledgements of the book, I say, we can all rest easy knowing that we have done this together Mm -hmm. and that this desire that I felt from my grandmother 
to be seen, for words to be seen. And I think a legitimacy, right? A credibility she really desires. I also desire. There's a completion there that um, really sets my soul at ease. And I'm hoping my mom as well. We'll see. In your episode, when you say the line, something along the line of, you know, she never published her book, I burst out crying. Um, mm. and, and so now that I'm hearing about the electroshock therapy too, I'm, I'm curious what you think that connection is. And, and then of course, now I'm getting the piece that her father and her husband both sound like not kind people. And I'm also tying it into this being the 1960s when many women were being told they needed electroshock therapy. And then I'm tying that into how here now, 60 years later, we're still having these mental health crises and people are still not fitting into the overculture as we're being told to fit into it. We're just not giving them electroshock therapy. We're doing other things. Yeah, I feel so sad. I feel so sad for her. Almost like she was not like it was the wrong era for her vibrance. Mm. Yeah. She also had three twilight births Mm -hmm. completely out and, and really fighting it, you know, where they cage the hands because it's, that is just almost, I almost can't talk about it. It's just Mm -hmm. very hard for me to feel. Yeah. I think she was treated like an animal that needed to be caged and tamed and you know, the electric shock therapy came because she had just left a, an alcoholic abusive man, my grandfather, and she needed help. She was, she was devastated and needed support. And what they said was go to San Francisco and get electric shock therapy. So she took my mom, my mom was there and she got it. And And the story in our family was like, she's a little crazy, you know? So think about that. Her entire life being related to is unstable and like a wild animal that needed to be tamed in cages makes me really, really, really sad. And so I have just been, she's, she's the one I talk to in my dreams because as often as the case, it skips a generation, right? That connection. And I just. I want her to know like that was messed up and I'm so sorry. And I'm going to live, like, I'm going to rewild my life as much as I can, you know, to undo that bullshit. Yeah. It's awful. I remember I watched a twilight birth. I watched Mad Men. Betty had a twilight birth and I was so, my mom couldn't. And I was so upset. And then I learned that my grandmother had that. Yeah. The 1960s. Well, there's also a very, I just rewatched Mad Men for the fourth time. Mm -hmm. There's also, you know, a subplot, a side character who undergoes electroshock therapy. She's a mother of two and just in this very unhappy marriage. Oh my gosh. That's right. Yeah. Alexis Bledel, the Alexis Bledel character. Yeah. Beth from Gilmore girls. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that I I really love that show is because it really does. There's just such an interesting, like ennui that's developing in the American psyche during the 1960s. Do you know this idea of the Pax Americana? Um, P-A-X being the Latin word for peace. So basically from the end of the World War II until 9-11, I mean, you can kind of put the dates anywhere. Some people would say it's even until now because there hasn't been a war on American soil. 
we've lived in this relatively peaceful and prosperous time, obviously different for different people. But, you know, the the boom years post-war, the 50s and 60s, um, capitalism and consumerism run amok, which is also what that show is taking such a brilliant look at because it's about an advertising agency on Madison Avenue in the 1960s. And all these things put into place where people just wanted something new and stable and safety after the war years and the Great Depression before that and then the first war, which felt great for many people at the time, but now is leading into this sort of unraveling of American culture that we're all living through and you know, supply chains falling apart and institutions completely losing the trust of the people. And I'm just... I don't know. These are just things I'm thinking about all the time and tying them into your look at disconnection and loneliness in the book. Mm -hmm. And so I think we just need to do a lot of grieving. Mm -hmm. I think our generation is, is the one that needs to grieve because I find these conversations that are ramping up really quickly about like right now, supply chain is pretty like the supply chain issues that are delayed from COVID lockdowns is they're just talking. I mean, I'm talking with my publisher about like, thank God my book's coming out in time because this holiday season, it's going to be a mess and everyone's going to push for shopping local. Wonderful. Right. But there's, there's bigger issues really happening with the collapse of these systems. And I find particularly because I'm not a fully resourced human. I'm never fully at capacity. I mean, I'm always at capacity. I never have enough capacity. I'm a mother, you know, like I, my nervous system is always not fully nourished to hear these very big things can often put me into a free state of panic. And I'm wondering like, what are all these like Gen Zers on TikTok feeling about this? Like, how are we all functioning right now, knowing these things are happening and everyone's coping in the ways, you know, I have family members who just won't even look at it, pretending it's not there. And so I'm just reminding myself of the ancestral practice of grief to move this so that we can be responsive to what's coming, to what's next. Because I used to just want to jump to the, well, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. But solution. Yeah, but I can't do that anymore. I just freeze because I'm so dang tired. <laughs> so yeah, I I just feel like we have got to wail. We have got to wail for a long time as much as possible to move this because there's a real sense of paralysis I'm picking up on mm-hmm. or just like hyper reactivity, hyper vigilance that is not in service to what is coming. Yeah. <sighs> Speaking of motherhood, you write in the book, this is in the, the final section about connection to self, that your body is sacred land. And when you interviewed me on your podcast, you were still pregnant and you were really vulnerably and sweetly asking me, you know, what's it like? What's going to happen to me? What's postpartum going to be like? So what, what has it been like? What has it been like as far as your connection with yourself and your 
undoubtedly renewed, reworked, torn apart and put back together again in some new way relationship with the sacred land that is your body. Ooh, do you remember I sent you a message and I was like, you were right. (laughs) And you're like, I forget what I said. (laughs) I'm forgetting now. What was I right about? That it's super hard. I remember I was like, but I, I gave my mother and my mother-in-law the first 40 days and I have a meal train. You're like, you're going to be, you're going to do great, babe. You're going to do great. You're so sweet and encouraging. And you're like, but it's hard. (laughs) I was like, but I'm, I'm going to make it the least hard. Yeah. I got walloped. Mm -hmm. I got really walloped. had a beautiful birth at home and, and then didn't sleep for the next two months. And as much as my mind prepared, you know, it, my, my nervous system was really shocked. It felt like a shock. It felt like being dumped with ice water mm-hmm. and I couldn't find my footing, a real sense of like, I can't find my footing being washed around in like a stormy tide, like, <sighs> and when I would reach out to mamas about it, they would just say, yeah, which was comforting and annoying. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then the very classic texting every friend who had a baby before me and saying, I'm so sorry. I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. Just feeling deep, deep grief for the ways I didn't show up for them. And them all saying, I know. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I know. Yeah. That's really sweet of you to do that. I would love oh, to the guilt from some people. <laughs> the guilt. I just felt like, wow, I really, if anyone felt a semblance of what I'm feeling right now, like, ouch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm 13, almost 14 months postpartum now. And it's leveled quite a bit. And there's no more sleep deprivation psychosis. Mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. And I'm not on the, I mean, I, I found my footing I'll say, but I'm very aware that I am still in the, like the goo before the butterfly, whatever that <laughs> metaphor is. Yeah. And it was so <laughs> scary when I was told like, it'll be, a, it'll be some years. I was really scared because so attached, right? So attached to my life and my ways and what I knew to be true, my body. And yeah, I fought my, and my labor and birth story was just similar, fighting the surrender, fighting, like, no, I could, no. And I'm fully surrendered. I'm humbled. I realize I am in a completely new lifetime. That's really how it's felt. I mean, I completely, I try to describe that to people like, oh, I've, I've had a full on identity crisis and I'm in a whole new lifetime and I'm learning, I'm learning the world. I mean, I obviously can remember and have retained wisdom of my motherless or childless time, but I feel like I've, I'm new and I'm beginning again and it's what an opportunity, right. To begin again. And with my body, the sacred land of my body. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Just like breastfeeding and digestion and hair loss, hair growth. 
exhaustion. Yeah. Oh, and then just like the cultural Kardashian, get your body back. Just, I, I, the, my comparison, I, I had to really step away from social media because I, it was Mother's Day triggered me so much mm. because I really had this story that a lot of people just had a baby and just jump back into their lives and well, jump back to Kim their Kardashian bodies. didn't actually have her babies. She had a few, but then she stopped. I think the first and maybe the second. Yeah. Right. This bypassing of this rite of passage that is physical too, right? It's full. It's everything. It's spiritual. It's physical. It's emotional. Yeah. So I'm in process. It's been really interesting to launch a book and be like, whoa, (laughs) I'm going to do all these things again because I'm learning to belong in my body. I'm learning to remember who I am or get to know who I am now. It's been a wild ride. And I do thank you again for how honest you were with Nixie and the whole process for you. I mean, it scared me, but it prepared me. So Mm -hmm. I thank you. And this is what we need to be doing, right? We need to be talking about this and not just putting a veneer over it. Mm-hmm. That's a hard line to walk to between scary <laughs> and being truthful um, yeah. with with first time pregnant women. Uh, Nixie just turned five, mm. and that's big. And I can hardly remember the postpartum time. And in many ways, I still feel like I'm in it. Um, yeah, like for sure, most of my time and energy is spent mothering her. And then I've got the older one as well, but of course that's a little less intense now. And, and having the older one reminds me of how quickly this stage goes and mm. um, kind of like you're saying that people, like it, it does get better. You know, it's weird because one of the things that has comforted me the most over years when I'm desperately searching online for like whatever problem my child is having or I'm having with my child and then I'll end up in like forums and I'll be reading other moms who were posting the same thing. And then I'll notice the date. It's like 2011. And I'm like, oh, well, her kid's nine now. So it's not happening for her anymore. And I'm like, yeah. well, that's the only real comfort there is actually. I mean, you know, there can be solutions and things that can happen. And it's a comfort that's not that comforting really, because you're not there yet. You're nowhere close to there yet, mm-hmm. but it's true that it's going to change and it's going to shift. And all we all we have is each other and the sharing of our stories and the reconnection to our place and our people to I don't know bring some sort of perspective and and meaning into it and I I loved your podcast episode I'll link to this too about um, mothering as ancestral reverence and Mm. that's been that's been helpful for me too when I just feel so overwhelmed and sad about what used to be and and what my life could have been oh yeah, the grief of postpartum, I was not prepared for either. Just the grief of watching my child grow. Mm-hmm. Ouch. Mm-hmm. Incessant growth. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Dang. I'm like, this is why people have more kids. <laughs> I just want to hold the baby again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that um, interview with Megan McGuire, uh, Forest Whisperer on Instagram, she just had her third. And she was such a like middle of the night message angel for me. 
And she told me two things, like one, like when you're, I think she also had a post about this. Like when I am breastfeeding my child, I am the world tree. Just like bringing in this, like in the calling in of the ancestors and really seeing that like, this is sacred practice to be mothering really helped me in the moments where I went into like, this sucks. I don't have my body. It's constant. You know, it's like, oh, I am the world tree feeding a descendant. Wow. And the other thing is when I was really, really struggling with sleep deprivation, we, we had a rough, we had a rough road there talking about energy, get calling in energy from other things than like caffeine and sleep, which sleep I couldn't get. It was just not on the table mm-hmm. and caffeine wasn't really effective and didn't make me feel good and would impact my child and talking about like calling in energy from like the water cascading over me in the shower, calling in energy from like the roots of the soil beneath me coming through the floorboards and into my body. Like you can call in energy from other forms to get you through this. It's not just you alone in the dark, which is how it felt and how it feels. And that was helpful. There were some nights I was cynical and I was like, shut up. But (laughs) there were, there were days I sat in the shower and was like, I call the energy of the waters into my body. Please help me get through this day. And it helped. That's lovely. I I need to use that because I mean, at 13 months, 14 months, you said you're kind of through it, but I'm Nixie's still not a great sleeper. Mm. I'm still struggling with sleep deprivation. Although this morning she slept until 7.45, which never happened. And I had an hour by myself. Also, my husband was out of town for the first time since she was born without us. So I just got to be alone in the house with my tea and your book, getting into the nooks and crannies I hadn't gotten into yet. And it was amazing. Um, But so I'm I'm gonna gonna use that. Thank you. And for anyone who's like, how did Becca fucking write and publish a book while she's pregnant and had a little one. You really go into the whole thing in, in that podcast episode that I referenced mm-hmm. earlier, which was released early October, 2021. If someone wants to go back and listen and I'll put it in the show notes too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was hard. <laughs> it was <laughs> really hard. I would not recommend it. Yeah. But, but I, I started it. this podcast, I think, right. She was one. Yeah. Because I've also found with both of my kids, there's something and it might be really, it might be breastfeeding and constant nipple stimulation. I've had other women say that where even though I'm exhausted and dying and unraveling in every way and grieving everything, there's this like creative surge that I've experienced when both of my girls were little that kind of gave me this weird, almost otherworldly energy to start new projects. And like, I've already lost that, you know, this podcast I'm doing much less often than I was back then, even though I like had much less time back then, it seems like, I don't know. I don't know how to like gauge or track energy when it comes to motherhood. It's yeah. It's definitely a departure from like, I don't know. I was such a cycle tracker pre-baby where I was like two weeks out of the month, I'm going strong. And then the next two weeks I'm doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we'll see how today goes. Yeah. I'm not making any promises. Um, okay. I'm not entirely sure when this podcast will release, but very near the release date of your book, which is November 16th. Is that right? Yes. yes. Okay. And, and if I do end up releasing it before you can pre-order 
Yes. And that helps you make more sales when it comes out and tells the publishing company to print more copies of the book. Yeah. Pre-orders are almost more important than regular orders. I have learned. Yes. Yeah. Any other message to people who are definitely going to be buying the book? Well, yeah. People ask me where they, you can, where to buy it anywhere especially if this comes out after the 16th anywhere, if it comes out before the 16th, Amazon. That is that is just the deal. Every Even the small independent booksellers look to Amazon. But really, wherever your values are, I would appreciate, I would appreciate it. And you can go to rootandritualbook.com for like extras and things like that. And check out the Belonging podcast if you love what Becca had to share here. And you will be on lots of other podcasts right now too, because you're promoting this book. So yes. I know I'm looking yeah. forward to, this was such a great conversation and the yeah. book was so beautiful that I would love to keep circling back to these same topics. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Amber. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, Becca. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more, more than I can list there, mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, which healing herb is your spirit medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there. And I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.